The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, April 5th, except it's really April 4th, 2023. Yes, it's an emergency podcast. The grand jury indictment of Donald Trump in the city of New York, in the Supreme Court of New York, has been unsealed. Uh, It involves Stormy Daniels, Karen McDougal, David Pecker, the famous doorman at Trump Tower, and a lot of salacious stuff and 34 counts of falsified business records with intent to facilitate other crime. And we've got the gang together to discuss it. Rebecca Royfe of the New York Law School, Quinta Jurassic, Anna Bauer, Serafine Dahnani, And we are all in the virtual jungle studio to unpack it all. I'm going to start with Rebecca because she has limited time with us today. So you were a prosecutor in the office that brought this case, the DA's office in Manhattan. Tell me, uh, because we're going to, we're going to hear all kinds of things from all kinds of people who don't really know the work product of this office at all. How surprising was this indictment to you as a kind of output of the office in which you served for a long time? It's really not all that surprising. This statute is quite commonly used. I worked mostly in what was then called Investigation Division Central, which focused on kind of major frauds and securities, international kinds of things that are, you would think, more the area of federal prosecutor's offices, but because we're in New York has always been an interest and was a particular interest of Morgenthau. So that with that background, I would say, you know, the it's really not, this is a sort of straightforward, not all that surprising, not all that complicated indictment. Um, I think what makes it obviously unique is the nature of the defendant. And so, you know, I guess I'll just start that way and saying that, you know, as a s- indictment coming out of the Manhattan DA's office, it really looks quite familiar to me and doesn't seem all that surprising, controversial, different, but obviously the major difference is just who it's charging. So one of the things that a lot of people expected today, and we will dive into this in some depth uh, later on, but one of the things that people were expecting was that the whole of the DA's legal theory would be revealed in this indictment in somewhat the same way that you would expect in a federal indictment. And that didn't happen. He kind of identified this record falsification statute and alleges that there is the basis for a step up from a misdemeanor to a felony, but doesn't quite explain the statutory basis of that, at least not in any detail. 
he was asked about it at a press conference and said, I didn't have to reveal all today. I had to, you know, state a, a fact pattern that meets the violation of this, uh, that constitutes a violation of the statute. I am certain that a lot of people will jump on this as evidence that there is some gross deficiency in, in the indictment. I'm curious from your point of view, uh, why you think Bragg played it that way and how typical it is for the New York DA's office to kind of not lay out their legal theory. It is typical not to lay out a legal theory. I was a little bit surprised about that myself, just given the indictment in the Trump Organization Weisselberg case that really was a speaking indictment. It laid out the case quite clearly in the indictment itself. It included a lot of the evidence and was quite clear. And I think you're absolutely right in pointing out that it was confusing, especially that question of what was the step up crime, for lack of a better term, the crime that is being alleged that he intended to commit by falsifying these records. And so I, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know if that, I mean, it's not like it's, it's, you know, not allowed or never happens. Sometimes, a lot of times in the DA's office, you have pretty bare bones um, indictments. But in a case with a long investigation where there is a, what's called an NA, you know, a non arrest indictment like this that is unsealed, usually it's more detailed. And there were details in that factual statement, but um, it, I, I think that aspect was a little frustrating. All right. So let's tack back, uh, Quinta, if you would give us a little background here for people who, you know, don't remember this case with the pristine knowledge of, you know, having the last episodes of it were some seasons ago and it's kind of come roaring back. Give us the background. Remind us who all these wonderful characters are. Yeah, there there really is a, a wide array of uh, colorful characters here. So all this really traces back to a series of reporting that the Wall Street Journal began in 2018 um, about reported payments made by Trump and his associates to two women in the run-up to the 2016 election. Uh, the two women were uh, Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress, and Karen McDougal, who's a former Playboy model. Both of them, according to the journal, in the run-up to the 2016 election, had kind of expressed interest in coming forward about what they said were uh, past sexual relationships they'd had with Trump uh, while he was married to his current wife, Melania Trump. In the case of McDougal, uh, the journal said, uh, Trump and his lawyer, Michael Cohen, coordinated with the publisher of the National Enquirer tabloid to essentially purchase McDougal's story uh, with exclusive rights to it with the goal of essentially just never publishing it. So this is uh, what listeners might know as a catch and kill arrangement. In the case of Daniels, um, Cohen himself actually paid Daniels. I believe the payments were $150,000 to McDougal, $130,000 to Daniels. So the goal here was essentially to prevent this information 
from about these uh, alleged affairs from getting out into the public eye in the run up to the 2016 election. And the journals reporting had indicated that this really sort of went into a fever pitch with the Daniels story uh, in the aftermath of the Access Hollywood tapes release in early October 2016, uh, that that was the point where Cohen actually pulled the trigger on making the initial payment to Daniels because they were worried um, that more news about Trump's sexual behavior uh, would hurt his standing with the electorate. So that's the journal reporting. Um, in August 2018, Cohen pleaded guilty to a number of counts, including in the Russia investigation. But for our purposes, we'll focus on these. Uh, in the Southern District of New York, he pleaded to uh, federal tax fraud charges and uh, violations of federal election law. So the argument is essentially uh, the federal prosecutors made was essentially that by coordinating and in the case of Daniels directly making these payments, Cohen was uh, in enabling essentially illegal contributions, contributions that were unreported or otherwise uh, illegal and that they were corporate contributions directly to a candidate. They were over the cap for an individual contribution uh, to the Trump campaign. And that was a violation of federal election law. Um, Then our story enters a new phase. Uh, At this point, there's a further investigation by the federal government, which kind of goes nowhere. Um, they announced in, I think, 2019 that they're sort of wrapping it up. Um, then the baton passes to the office of the Manhattan District Attorney, which is conducting its own investigation. Uh, that results in the indictment of the Trump organization uh, sort of institutionally and its chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, in the summer of 2021. And this is the point where things get kind of fuzzy. There's been a lot of dispute about whether the office was going to bring the hush money charges against Trump related to the Cohen payments, um, whether it was going to drop it. Um, A lot of back and forth between the sort of line prosecutors who were working on the case about whether or not it had been squashed. Um, inappropriately by the the new DA who was coming in partway through this investigation, Alvin Bragg. Uh, whatever happened, Bragg seems to have decided that this case was worth bringing. Um, and in January of this year, after a long, I think it's fair to say, kind of dormant period, um, it seemed like he was moving ahead with charges. Um, and that is a very long and roundabout way of getting us to where we are today. Right. So, uh, Rebecca, there have been a number of theories of Bragg's behavior. Uh, One is, you know, that he, he ducked. uh, And of course his, the prosecutor who had run the investigation, Mr. Pomerantz has kind of alleged this, that he ducked on the big case, which was that the, the Trump uh, uh, tax fraud case. There have also been, you know, from Trump world, allegations that he's a, a, a horrible liberal uh, Soros-funded uh, puppet who's uh, on a witch hunt. And then there's a kind of intermediate theory that, well, maybe he thought this case was ready and the other one had deficiencies. Um, how do you read his kind of differential handling of these different cases? Should we just take it as a as a judgment on the merits, or should we take it as uh, indicating something uh, more political and less attractive? 
I think the easiest read of what has happened, as you just laid it out, is that he really is assessing these cases, looking at the law, looking at the facts, and making a judgment call about whether it's appropriate to bring this case, which is just what um, prosecutorial discretion requires that he do. So I think, you know, as as you kind of detail it, it makes it particularly clear that if he was a political puppet um, or ideologue, he would have just brought that case that Pomerantz wanted to bring. It was a flashier case. Um, and that, that brought him a lot of flack from people on his own side. So if he was really just trying to win political points, he would have brought that case. And I think the fact that he didn't, and then he waited, and he's still supposedly looking at that case, and now he's looking at this case, makes the only reasonable inference, or at least the most reasonable inference, that he's really making a judgment based on the facts and the law. There is one other possible inference, though, which is, you know, that this case was, you know, it's sometimes called the zombie case, right? And there's never really been an explanation for the Uh, long lag between when the federal government dropped the matter and when he picked it up again. Um, And so one thing that I've kind of flirted with is that he's kind of, he took a lot of criticism for dropping the first case uh, or for not moving forward with the first case. And watched as Fonnie Willis uh, down in Georgia ran her uh, special grand jury investigation and got a lot of national attention for it and kind of picked this one up as almost like a consolation prize. Do you have any theory as to what explains the lag and why this case, it doesn't seem like there's much in this case as indicted that couldn't have been there a year ago. How do you explain the the long gap? Well, I'm not sure. I do think he said in his press conference, and I did read in the indictment several facts that I don't know when they came out. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible that somebody could have found those facts, but did they have those facts before he conducted this investigation? I don't know. But I, you know, I think it could be a little bit of both, um, uh, a little bit of a prosecutor just doing his job, looking at the laws and the facts. And, you know, how, how can he possibly completely ignore the political environment? So I think it could be a little bit of both. And I think that's the fair way of looking at it, that in other words, you know, think about like, you know, you're really not as prosecutors supposed to pursue a person. Um, You're supposed to pursue evidence and crimes. Uh, But there are lots of examples of prosecutors who have in their life decided to go after a particular person that they are sure is committing crimes. I mean, you know, I think of like catching the most famous examples, like catching Al Capone on, on tax evasion. So I think there's a little bit of that in here. And the question is, Actually, to me, there are two questions. One, is that appropriate? Is that an appropriate thing for a prosecutor to do? And two, is that especially problematic when the target of of this is a former president who still holds such sway and has such a vast number of supporters. Um, and is currently running for and is, the 100%. Sorry, I left that out. Yeah. And is, is currently running for president because 
I think it is incumbent on a prosecutor not to consider politics, not to consider his own political career or aspirations. All of that is inappropriate, but considering in a larger sense, the public interest is part of what you do. I mean, you don't charge every crime where you find that one exists. You have to think at a different level should I bring these charges? And you do think broadly about the public interest. And part of that is, you know, involves this question of charging a former president, the costs and the benefits of doing that. And it's a very complicated calculation because there are benefits, of course, the benefits of projecting that no man is above the law, making it clear that, you know, power doesn't insulate you and doesn't allow you to get away with, you know, doing the kinds of crimes that other people can't do. Um, But at the same time, indicting a president and a former president who's this popular and continues to be have a political presence, a significant political presence runs the risk of alienating people, um, the legitimacy of the criminal justice system more broadly, not just the federal criminal justice system, but criminal justice in general. And I think those are weighty concerns. So when you read this indictment, do you say this indictment justifies the overcomes the hurdles that those weighty concerns uh, raise? Or do you say, hey, uh, with all due respect to uh, the current DA, those weighty concerns, even assuming that the legal theory has merit and the uh, evidence will support the 34 charges that he's brought, this doesn't get there for me. I'm happy that I wasn't the person in the position to make that call because I, I, you know, I can go back and forth. I think that this is an indictment that's squarely within the DA's bailiwick. It's sort of what, what, what the Manhattan DA does, the kinds of crimes it pursues and the ways in which it keeps New York markets fair. I think that on all those levels, it's simple, straightforward and, the bread and butter of the DA's office, exactly what it should be doing. Why shouldn't it treat anybody differently just because of who they are? On the other hand, I see all those downsides and I don't know how that all, all plays out. You know, it seems like it's a significant question with really potentially grave consequences either way. And I, I just have to say, I don't know. All right. With all of that as a kind of prelude, Serafin, walk us through the indictment. Uh, It's a a fairly simple document in some ways. Uh, Let's talk about what the document actually alleges. uh, And let's talk about the indictment first and then the statement of facts, uh, which unlike in a federal case is actually a separate document. Uh, We'll talk about that in a moment. But let walk us through the document itself. So the indictment itself as a document doesn't really give us a lot. Notably, we know that Donald Trump is being charged under Section 175.10, which is falsification of business records. But what's notable about the indictment is that it doesn't go into details about these additional charges that must be met in order for the crime to uh, meet the standard of a felony. So For the listeners who may not know this, although I think it's been reported quite widely, that 175.10 would typically be a misdemeanor 
unless the defendant's intent to defraud included an intent to commit another crime or to aid or conceal the commission of another crime. And so the indictment itself doesn't say anything, although the prosecutor in this case, Braggs, does go on later on during his press conference and gives us more detail about what some of those charges might look like. All right. So this is literally the indictment is a list of 34 instances in which Donald Trump either uh, falsified a record himself or caused one to be falsified and doesn't really tell a story about each one. Is that right? That's right. All right. Which brings us to the statement of facts, which is kind of the the speaking document here, without repeating uh, the background that Quinta gave, what's the essential story that's covered by the statement of facts? The statement of facts is quite interesting here because I think there is a bit of color on who is talking and what they're alleging. The big issue was whether we could trust Cohen as a credible witness And it seems like the statement of facts gives us more information about the Trump Organization chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg. And uh, through that, we find that there was this, in fact, very elaborate uh, catch and kill scheme to take any sort of information that was negative, uh, specifically that had to do with Trump and sexual allegations against him and suppress that information and ensure that no one talks to the media and and spreads any of that. And it was all, it seems like, a part and parcel to ensure that he has a strong footing in the election. Rebecca, one of the criticisms that this case has received is that, including from former Attorney General Bill Barr, is that, you know, this is a privately held company. Uh, nobody's being defrauded here. There's no shareholders to, to defraud. So if the president, the former president, you know, wants to pay hush money, there's nothing illegal about that. And uh, what you call it in your own books, you know, that would be one thing if this is a a publicly traded company and you're, or if you're defrauding the IRS, but where does the alleged criminality of a aside from the sordidness of the scheme, where does the alleged criminality of, of, you know, paying out of one pocket and then reimbursing that with, you know, reimbursing your lawyer and coding it as a legal fee when it's not, How do we get a crime out of that? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I think it's important to understand that business records are not really like your personal files. Um, They are actually a kind of public record, even when it's not a public company. And they're defined in the criminal code as, you know, any business's internal records. The reason why it's like, that's where businesses show their work, essentially. So that should any regulator or tax authority come knocking, they expect, you know, to see truthful records there. And of course, there could be an innocent mistake, error, even falsification inside those records. But if you're doing that with an intent to 
defraud any one of those people. And the term defraud is really defined very broadly in New York. Unlike federal law, it doesn't require anybody losing money. Um, so the idea that you are trying to make it look one way, you know, so that, you know, you could, you're basically supporting some claim about what you're doing, you know, the donations you're making to a campaign or the ways in which you're influencing a campaign or something like that. Those are all criminal. It's not criminal to pay off a porn star, as Bill Barr said, but it's criminal to hide that you're doing that in your business records. If you're also intending to commit some other crime or fraud. I also want to point out that um, something that I thought was really interesting about the indictment was that there is um, also a allegation that the former president falsified the records in paying, in, in reimbursing Cohen for this payment, for this hush money payment. And that seems to be suggesting that by by characterizing the reimbursement as income, this was essentially a way to um, to commit tax fraud, state tax fraud. Um, and I think that the DA said that in his press conference as well. So while most of the indictment suggests that that for that other crime that bumps it up to a felony is either state or federal election crime. There is one part of the indictment in the statement of facts where it um, seems as if it's actually tax fraud. And that is important because there may be some legal and factual problems with the, with the um, notion that Trump was doing this, lying on his records in order to commit state or federal election fraud, but the tax claim, if they can prove it, is much more solid. All right. We are going to let you go. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills. It can help you be the best version of yourself. And it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp Visit BetterHelp.com slash Lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, 
com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. All right. So with that as a segue, let's move on to the subject of the legal theory itself. Anna, uh, you have been uh, thinking about the legal theory that might underlie this case and following the various debates about it. As we have 
discussed, it's still not entirely clear what it is, but walk us through what we know at this point. Sure. Thanks, Ben. So we know that Trump has been charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Um, And what the prosecution has to prove under those charges is first that Trump caused or, or did himself make false entries in a, in a business such as the Trump organization, which is what the indictment alleges. Um, second, that he did that with an intent to defraud. And then third, that that intent to defraud included some kind of intent to further or conceal or commit another crime. Okay, so I, I want to pause there for those who have not been following this debate, there has been, this is what's called the step up element, how you get at the step up crime, how what the intent to commit another crime refers to people, some commentators have suggested that this might, they might not have adequate evidence of this. Some have fiercely defended this idea. Um, so, All of that debate was taken without knowing what the alleged step-up crime was going to be. And the wrinkle that Bragg throws us here is that we still don't really know, right? So what what do we know about what the step-up crime is? Right. So I think that there's two major ways that Bragg could go with this. One is the tax theory. So there could be some kind of theory that this second crime is this intent to conceal some of Michael Cohen's uh, potential tax fraud by um, paying him more than the um, reimbursement. And then the second way that Brad could go with this bump up crime would be to rely on some of the federal or state election laws or campaign finance laws. And I think Rebecca set out some of the problems that the Bragg could encounter with the intent element if it ends up being this election-related theory. She mentioned she mentioned it, but she didn't uh, she didn't lay out what the concern is. So so what is the what what is the concern there? He he seemed to be dealing with uh, in the press conference. He made clear that he was talking about. Uh, chiefly about state election law, um, but also suggested that there was a federal election law issue too. So what do we know about uh, about the concerns there? So I think the concern is rooted in how New York courts have defined intent to defraud in the past. One way that it's been defined is pretty narrow. So it's it means that you have to intend to defraud someone out of some kind of property interest or money interest. And then the other way is is more broad. And it means that you don't necessarily have to intend to cheat someone out of money, but you just could have some kind of uh, larger intent to defraud or deceive um, the government, for example. Um, and I think that with the election theory, uh, one of the issues is kind of, okay, well, who was cheated out of money. And it seems like there's not really a clear answer of exactly who was cheated out of some property interest or thing of value. 
So if that's the jury instruction, then you might find that some of this election bump up crime might run into a little bit of trouble. With that said, it is arguable that it could be defined narrowly. But I will say that looking at some of the more recent cases in New York, it seems like intended to fraud has been defined more broadly. Um, And I know that Rebecca and some other former prosecutors in New York have kind of taken the view that it likely won't be a major issue for Bragg. But then there are also some preemption issues that the election theory might run into as well. Um, So I think that maybe that's one reason why we're not really getting a full sense of what the specific theory is. Um, and, And Bragg kind of ensured that the jury could have a lot of options with different theories between whether it's tax fraud or whether it is the election related stuff. And so that could explain one reason why there are so many various uh, kind of theories that he could use for that bump up crime. Yeah. So I'm curious from each of you, Uh, I'm curious for your answer to the same question that I asked Rebecca, which is that bearing in mind all the prudential concerns about indicting a former president, prosecuting a former president, prosecuting a former president who's currently running for the office and who's, you know, uh, not so subtly threatening violence, uh, assuming Everything in the alleg- in the in the indictment is uh, provable, and that the legal theory is sound. Quinta, do you bring this case if you're Alvin Bragg? Oof, I'm I'm gonna uh, side with Rebecca and say that I'm very glad that I'm not Alvin Bragg, <laughs> and therefore that I did not have to weigh uh, whether to to bring this case. I will say that I need to go through um, the statement of offense and the, the various charging documents and the Michael Cohen plea agreement and kind of compare it side by side and see what new information we have here. But I think, um, having just read both of those documents, that there is some information in the indictment and the statement of facts that was reported in news coverage, but did not actually make it into the Cohen charging documents. And that I think is significant because if you go and read the Wall Street Journal coverage, and then you go and read the Cohen charging documents, you will see, as is often the case, that there was more reported than is charged, uh, particularly when it comes to Trump's involvement, which makes sense. You know, news organizations obviously have their own standards and the the journals are high uh, for what they can put in the paper, but they don't have to prove it in criminal court beyond a reasonable doubt. It's it's just a different way of, of gathering and collecting and presenting information. Um, and so the fact that I believe that Bragg's office seems to have locked in those facts to the extent that they're comfortable putting it into the statement of facts, I think is significant. And so some of that information that I'm thinking of includes the fact that um, there was a, a meeting with Cohen and with the publisher, David Pecker, the publisher of the National Enquirer, in the the run-up um, to the 2016 election, um, where 
Trump directly asked for Pecker's assistance. Um, and Pecker said that he, he was, you know, happy to help him. Um, I'm paraphrasing here and, and, uh, would engage in catch and kill operations. Um, there's also information here about, uh, that seems to trace back to Alan Weisselberg, the CFO, which is significant because it means we're not just relying on Cohen's testimony. There's a detail about, uh, uh, Cohen and Trump first settling on the agreement for Cohen to be repaid for his payment to Daniels in a meeting that was actually held in the Oval Office in February 2017, which I, I am almost certain is new. And so all of those kind of details, the fact that we're getting them for the first time in actually a charging document, suggests to me that perhaps there really is information that Bragg's office felt that they were able to nail down that the federal government just couldn't. Um, so that certainly makes me feel like there there might be something to this case. That said, you know, there is a long and weird backstory to how we got here. Um, and I'm what I have seen so far does not totally assuage my concerns, nor does it answer the question of why Bragg seemingly did kind of a U-turn um, on on this case over the course of 2022 and 2023. So I will say I'm I'm withholding further judgment um, until I see more information about what the office may have. How about you, Seraphine? Will you uh, be the one who will take a position on this question if you? Looked at this, looking at this indictment, do you think it justifies itself? Or if you were in Alvin Bragg's position, would you have acted differently than he has acted here? So if you asked me this yesterday, I would have confidently said that I wish this wasn't the first case out of the gate. I think that the case down in Georgia feels a bit more heavy and robust, and it actually has a more clear connection to the erosion of our democracy. Uh, certainly this one does in some respects as well, but I was listening to The Economist this morning and I don't think this paying hush money to a porn star bit that often commentators talk about is helpful to this case. And I also recognize that DA Braggs is not going to Fannie Willis and negotiating and saying, if you go first, that would be good for the optics. So I can appreciate that that's probably out of the question, although I wish that, at least yesterday, that this wasn't the first case. Now, I take a different position today. I agree that the indictment is sparse, but I was really impressed by Braggs's press conference today. And he mentioned something along the lines of, Manhattan being home to important businesses and that, you know, New York businesses should not be manipulating their records to cover up criminal conduct. And I think that's right. So even if we don't have a criminal theory, the fact that he's rooting his intention in that and that this is Manhattan, it's, you know, the business empire of the world and it's important for us to uphold the law is no, and no one is above the law, not even the president of the United States. I think that is quite solid. And if we can maintain that that energy and that rhetoric, I, I think that I'm interested to see where this case goes. I think I'm cautiously optimistic, even if the indictment didn't make me feel that way. I want to agree with Sarafin here. Uh, we have, by the way, lost Anna Bauer, uh, whose computer has crashed so I have not been able to get an answer from her on this question, but I actually really agree with Seraphine here. I think I was 
pretty skeptical of this case. And it's not that the uh, facts are radically worse than I anticipated or than we knew. In fact, they're largely consistent with, with a few exceptions that Quinta has mentioned. Uh, but I think that Bragg has uh, acquitted himself extremely well in this press conference today and articulated a very legitimate reason why New York would care about these record falsifications in a way that maybe aren't so important to the federal government. And I also think that the the statement of facts uh, and therefore the indictment that they support really do bring out uh, the uh, democratic erosion quality of this, which is that, you know, the DA here is alleging uh, a immediate pre-election conspiracy, not framed as a conspiracy, but they call it in the document a scheme to hide information from the public to facilitate uh, that would be damaging from the candidate's point of view, done uh, and with records falsified uh, specifically in an effort to evade federal and state tax law and uh, federal and state election law. And I, I do think that is uh, not a huge piece of Trump's erosion of American democracy, but it's not unrelated to it either. And so I, I actually have softened a bit on this case. I, I do wish it were not first. I do think it is objectively less important than January 6th, than, uh, than the Mar-a-Lago documents case, which is near and dear to my, you know, national security nerd hat heart. Uh, and uh, uh, less important also than the Georgia case. But I was struck in in watching Bragg today that he's a he seemed like a prosecutor uh, who is vindicating a genuine local interest. And so if we assume, and this is, of course, a big assumption, if we assume that the legal theory is sound, which he clearly believes it is, and we assume that the facts are all provable as he's alleged, uh, which may also be an, a, a big assumption, I'm inclined to say that I would bring this case if I were in his shoes and those conditions, and I were confident of those conditions. So I'm, and like uh, Sarafin, I'm not sure I would have said that yesterday. So I, I, I do think the day has treated uh, Alvin Bragg pretty well, at least in my eyes. So Quinta, I want to um, head toward wrapping up here, but um, I, I want to ask you what you think realistically comes next. Uh, the president flew back to Mar-a-Lago following a, or former president flew back to Mar-a-Lago following a protracted uh, arraignment discussion of his bullying um, and threats to the uh, justice system. He's going to give some kind of a uh, speech tonight. Uh, what do you see as uh, the next steps that people should be looking forward to? 
Well, I I am certainly going to be uh, keeping an, an eye or an ear on his comments tonight, just because we know that he has been encouraging violence in the past when he uh, first announced that he thought that he would be arrested at the end of March. Um, there was a great deal of violent rhetoric that really alarmed security officials. So far today was pretty peaceful. I think there was kind of a, a scrum that was more absurd than concerning outside the the courthouse, but re- with relatively few people. Um, but I do think, you know, there is a potential danger here. And uh, the judge and the, the district attorney's office seemed extremely aware of that in the conversation that apparently went on uh, during the arraignment. So I think that that will be quite important um, to, to keep an eye on. I certainly would not be surprised um, if Trump posts something incendiary. We at this point are all extremely familiar with the uh, little song and dance routine where, you know, his advisors say that he's really changed and he's taken things to heart and he understands the seriousness of the situation. And then he comes out with something ridiculous and incendiary. Um, so that would not be a terrible shock um, to me. In terms of what, what comes next in the case, I I will leave that to folks who have a better understanding of uh, New York State criminal procedure than, than I do. Um, but I would imagine we are in for a few months of exciting news. Yeah. So on the case, I think we can look forward to, uh, first of all, a motion to dismiss from, from Trump. And I think that will, that it may be several motions, but it will have a number of elements. First, uh, it will really try to probe the theory under which these step ups are working. That is, uh, it will contend that you got to drop out all the federal election stuff and state election stuff is preempted uh, and that the facts kind of don't support step up on, on, on anything else. I think you will also have uh, a, some kind of contention along the lines of what Bill Barr was suggesting that, you know, as a matter of law, these uh, falsifications can't defraud anybody because, you know, it's a privately held company and you're not, you know, you're not really obliged to, to uh, there's no kind of fiduciary duty to anybody to code something as a payment to a porn star rather than as a legal fee. I think you're going to have a lot of that stuff litigated pretty quickly I also think you're very likely to see Trump's pattern in this is very consistent, which is he tries to get stuff into federal court. And here, unlike in Georgia, realistically, you're not going to get that done by uh, removal to federal court. So I would expect a kind of collateral attack on this in federal court, much the way we saw with the Mar-a-Lago uh, search warrant. So, you know, he files there famously the suit in Eileen Cannon's courtroom that produced, you know, a, a summer of uh, uh, craziness or a fall of craziness. Um, and I think you'll see something like that, although the Second Circuit is a much less hospitable environment. Uh, the Southern District of New York is a much less hospitable environment for that than the Southern District of Florida. I think all of that stuff is likely to happen very fast because if you're 
Donald Trump and you're his lawyers, the very last thing you want is to get into the day-to-day of actually litigating a criminal case, which you know, never makes a defendant look good and also normalizes the idea in this case that Donald Trump is a criminal defendant. And so I think you're likely to see a, a kind of blitz litigation that could, uh, and I uh, be really interfered with if Trump continues to make incendiary comments of the type that prosecutors will just bring back into court over and over again uh, and ask for relief for. So I think it's going to be fast and furious and uh, we're in for a wild ride. Uh, Quinta, final thoughts before we sign off? You know, it's hard to to say anything more than than what's already been said. There are so many weird little details that I'd totally forgotten about, like the doorman who claimed that Donald Trump had an illegitimate child. Oh yeah, we uh, got We got <laughs> We've we've gone the whole show. I teased the doorman in the intro in the introduction, and we haven't talked about him. Yeah, uh, doorman gate. Uh, we can't. We're going to close the show on the doorman. What do we know about the doorman? <laughs> Yeah. So and the, is he going to testify? The doorman, uh, I, that I do not know. Um, so the, the doorman was a story that I genuinely had completely forgotten about. Um, this is another example of the Inquirer engaging in a catch and kill operation for Trump. Um, so according to uh, the Statement of Facts and Bragg's office, um, in around October, November 2015, so this was, I believe, after Trump had declared his candidacy for the presidency, there was a former Trump Tower doorman who was trying to sell information claiming that Trump had had an illegitimate child. The Inquirer uh, orchestrated a catch and kill arrangement with the doorman for $30,000. It later turned out that the doorman's claims did not actually hold up under scrutiny, but the the agreement held until after the 2016 election. Um, so this is sort of relevant insofar as it's another example of the kind of things that the Inquirer was doing on behalf of Trump. And Bragg also says that uh, uh, American Media Inc., uh, the Inquirer's parent company, falsely characterized the payment to the doorman on the books. So there there you go. You have a, another uh, falsification of business record story. But I, I think it's just this weird little incident, which had been reported on, I believe, in connection with our initial Stormy Daniels story by the Journal in 2018, um, is just kind of a reminder of how weird this case is. There's kind of no other word for it. It's just, it's a very strange thing. Yeah, I think uh, I, I just want to add two things on uh the doorman matter, which by the way, I'm banned from Twitter now, but you all should get the hashtag free the doorman going uh, so that we can get his testimony. No, I'm joking. Um, The first is that the importance of the doorman story is that, you know, one of the, one of the things that uh, has been said against this case is it's just, you know, it's just a, a confidentiality agreement, a an NDA of the type that businesses routinely engage in. And here, uh, and the, the DA's allegation is that it, it isn't just that. It's a, a scheme to shut up a group of people who were uh, collectively threatening to, perhaps unbeknownst to each other, but collectively threatening to derail uh, Trump's 
uh, presidential campaign with, in some cases, true, in some cases, not true stories about his sexual dalliances. And so there were there was a concerted effort for purposes of influencing the campaign to shut them all up. And that, that is a different matter from a different matter from, you know, a, uh, an NDA, a confidential settlement kind of arrangement with one person. And so I do think Karen McDougal having Karen McDougal and the doorman there is an optically uh, and maybe substantively significant thing. All right, Seraphine, final thoughts looking forward. Uh, what are you uh, what are you looking for? So I can't outdo Quinta over here. But what I will say is the thing that I'm curious about is Trump as a presidential candidate. And so, Ben, you mentioned this timeline of sorts and that a lot of this will get resolved relatively quickly. And that's fine. But I do wonder, you know, there is no law that states that someone being prosecuted cannot run for president. So if the case isn't resolved by 2024, you know, will Trump run? And if these cases are resolved and for whatever reason he's still running, will he be elected? And I, if I had to venture to guess, I think I have a bit more faith in the American public. Uh, the, if the midterm elections are any indication, it seems like people are generally tired of this sort of Trumpism. Even if they believe in it, I think Trump as a candidate seems to be a walking liability kind of a disaster. And so I'd like to think that even if he gets the Republican nomination, he probably won't be elected. Uh, Query whether he might even get the Republican nomination. But everything that has to do with the president and elections in 2024, I'm really curious to see how, how all of that unfolds in light of this case and possibly even more indictments in the future. We are going to leave it there on the Trump as Eugene Debs candidacy. Seraphine, Quinta, Rebecca Royfe, and Anna Bauer, some of whom are still present and some of whom are not. Thank you all for joining us today. Thank you. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution, although today uh, it's probably more pertinent to say the Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo. Our audio engineer is the many-handed Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, who kept this uh, recording going through thick and thin as people dropped in and out. The Lawfare Podcast, I want to say uh, the promotional department is you guys. And uh, this is an important message today because, as some of you know, I have been booted off Twitter, which means that my ability to promote the Lawfare Podcast by tweeting about it is now kaput, whereas yours remains untouched. So please share the Lawfare Podcast on Twitter Facebook, Spoutable, Post News, Mastodon, Instagram, Pinterest, Reddit, YouTube. Make YouTube videos about us. Share the Lawfare podcast. That's the rule. You should also become a material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. The Lawfare podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell. Our music 
is performed by Sophia Yan. And on this emergency podcast, as always, thanks for listening.